Yes, Capon. I was. Yeah, um, I've never heard anyone say it. So I, it's one of those ones where it's like you've read it and it's there's no audio books because half the most of his books are out of print. So and I found yeah. So I actually happened to leave my book here at the studio. I went on to something archive. I can't remember what it's called. Internet archive or something. It was some sort of like history archive and had all the, it had this book in there. So I was like, man, I wonder what's on YouTube from this guy. If anybody even has done it. So I went to YouTube. Oh, that's a good. <laughs> I never even thought of that. And uh, I searched out his name, and there's only one video that's a four part series on, I think history. He's 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 a little weird with history. I don't know how I feel about his history stuff yet i'm gonna put a pause on some of that but at least how he's talking about it there because for him the way he talked about history in the video was it was irrelevant in one sense or another if it was um he's like if you ask um is the bible history and that's not where i want to talk about but i just wanted to bring this up real quick but he's talking about if you ask the bible history most of the fundamentalists will say yes Basically saying, like, did these things really happen? And he's like, yeah, that's true. It, that's the, that's it happened in one sense or another. But history is something so much bigger than that and broader than that. Um, it's it's not just did it happen. It's almost and he didn't say it like this, but it's almost what it actually makes you right. It's something that that is lifted into time. And um, but it, but I, only reason I was searching for that was because I'm trying to understand what is what what is Robert Capon talking about when he talks about like lifting something into history. Yeah. Right. So there's two things I guess I really want to talk about. Like um, as a priest, as Adam's priesthood, what is oblation ultimately? What is, what is that oblation? Was that thing oblation? And then what is, what is lifting it? What is oblating something into history? Do you understand those? Well, I think so. I mean, I, I, I've been, wrestling with him and his writings for 20 years or so um whoa i i found this book i found an offering of uncles in um in a used bookstore uh in um spokane and i had heard of his book uh the supper of the lamb a lot I hadn't of people read it that. yet, yeah. But I'd I'd heard of it, and I saw, and I was like, "Oh, this is really cool. What's this?" And I grabbed it, and went home, and it just blew my mind. And then I went to find out more about it, and couldn't find anything because it was one of his first books. It was out of print. It, it you know, and so, um, just realized that this book had slipped past. It had gone through. Uh, hardback into paperback and then never printed again. So, um, yeah, this one doesn't have the same attention as a lot of his other books. Yeah, it doesn't. And, it, but it's, it really, when you look at everything he read, he wrote, this one has is kind of an overview of his thought. So it's actually a really good place to start because he dives in deeper on food. He dives in deeper yeah. on, um, on, uh, the kingship. King kingship of Adam aspects in other books. He oh, dives, really? Which book is that? Deeper. Um, he's he's got a book, and this is this one I haven't read. Um, but he's got a book uh, on the parables. That's about um the nature of the kingdom and the nature of our kingship, and um and it's got really good reviews. I just haven't ever read it. 
Um, and then, uh, so he, he, but then he, he wrote an entire book on marriage. That's really good called the bed and board. Yeah. You gave me that one. Um, and, but it's not, you know, so many of our, so many of the books that we get are really self-help books disguised as theology. Um, and so we, and it's not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that as a genre of book, right? You can have a good solid Christian self-help books on marriage or whatever, but, um, but the, you're all most self-help books. You're are, you're still working out of the imagination that you had from at the beginning. Right. right. So if it goes in and says, here's how to help you get what you want out of your marriage. You, they never tell you, are you asking the right things? Are you are you trying to get the right things out of your marriage? Have you thought about what the nature of marriage is? What kind of creature you are? What kind of yeah. creature your wife is? What kind of creature your your family is? And um, said, what's that thing for? And that's where he is so where I found him so helpful. Not because I even end up agreeing with him on everything, but because the way that he, because he is but but he's wrestling with those questions that. Um, no, that really nobody else was wrestling with in the church. There were people wrestling with those questions in his day, um, but a lot of them were like German philosophers, and you know, you, you, um, you had some English philo- philosophers wrestling with them. But uh, well, the, I mean, even agree with him or not on some of those points, there's no you can't disagree with that. He's doing the very thing that he says you should be doing, at least in this book, Offered of Uncles. Right. Like right. he's being priestly with words. He's he's lifting them up and he's making something unique out of them in his phraseology. I mean, there's no question that he's yeah doing some of the things here that man should be doing. Right. right. He anyway. writes very poetically. And what I love yes. is he it, it it's like so my experience was it was like, oh, you didn't realize that your whole life you've been cross-eyed. And for a moment, while you read him, your eyes are straight. He straightens out your eyes. Then you go back to the world, and you're like, "Oh, but they're my, but my eyes keep pushing themselves back, cross-eyed." Yeah. And then, so you, um, and you, you have to, you discover that you have to actually put some effort into uncrossing your eyes for a long time. And then, and there's a couple other guys that do this for me personally. Chesterton, yeah. uh, Chesterton had has this sort of effect on me. Um, the, you know, you, there's, you know, those, those writers that you go, Oh, George Grant, um, yep. has been like this for me, you know, Oh, that's what reality is like, you know, and then you have to just kind of spend more and more time with them. Reread stuff. Walker Percy, um, for yep. me, and, and I know that but but I know everybody because everybody comes from a different spot with a different um, perspective. That different writers do that for them. You know, different writers uncross their eyes for a moment. Thomas Watson was one of those guys for me. Yeah, right. It was because for me, I had a lot of content of theology. I just didn't have it put in the right places, you know, and nor yeah. did it touch. Right, it was right. all separate. So yeah, I understand that. Yeah, one of the, the best books I read on preaching when I was preaching you know, weekly 
was a book on Thomas Watson's use of metaphors in preaching. I can't even remember what the book was called. Oh my! But goodness. it was it was brilliant. It was really really helpful. Um, and it was how and it it's really a how to help apply to to people's lives through their imaginations was you know Thomas Watson. Oh, on, I need that on book. that. It was really good. It's pink. I remember thinking, man, I wouldn't have out of published this in a pink cover. <laughs> he probably wouldn't want it published in a pink cover either. <laughs> well, you know, pink, pink and blue didn't really become the colors for boys and girls that we think they are until right at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, kind of. So we, but that's just you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't still use pink and blue that the right way. I'm just saying, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, it's funny to talk about that. Maybe we'll talk about that later as he, because Capon talks about the the kilt and Mm -hmm. the toga in here in this chapter. So it's funny you bring that up. I I like that section because he's like, we we never ask, what do we lose um, when by getting rid of the kilt and the toga and the robe? And yeah, we always just say, yeah, bad time to bring it back. But I mean, I get him. Right, like, but well, well that, yeah, that's exactly. I mean, he was not, and one of the things that's great is he helps me see how the reactionary parts, um, because he's yeah. he's there's not the he's pre sexual revolution, pre homosexual, pre homosexual revolution, pre trans revolution. I don't even know what you call what's going on now. Um, you got to <laughs> give it some time before the history books name it. Com- com- um, complete uh collapse of humanity is what we call yeah it. i i think so it's the the um but whatever's going on he's yeah this, before all of that yeah this is so written. he can yeah he can still talk the way he can talk you know well this was copyrighted in 67 i don't know when he wrote it but yeah yeah that yeah i, don't, I think this is actually earlier than that so it was, could be it was, but I think it was first published in '67. Yep. Um, but yeah, and I think that's what is. So there's something refreshing about it because I mean the hippie movement hadn't even really started yet. Right. I, mean, I guess it had started, but it hadn't really hit the hit the uh, big time yet. So then, um, oblation. Let's oblating something into history. What is that? Yeah, because to oblate is that's the verb. To and, oblate. Um, should we pull out our? Oh, he's got dictionaries right there. Sure, why? You know what, Jason? Why not? Because what we missed last time when we were talking about this is his how he talks about the egg. Oh yes, I have that left at home. You're gonna need bifocals with uh, six degrees <laughs> of focal length to be able to read that thing. Yep. Man, that is a huge definition. (laughs) Oblation. Offering a sacrifice. Presenting a gift. Uh, or sacrifice, the action of offering, 
um, in a religious or ecclesiastical sense, the action of solemn offering or presenting something to God or to a deity, the offering of a sacrifice of thanksgiving or of religious devotion. The action of offering or presenting the elements of bread and wine to God in the Eucharist. Um, and then that which is offered or presented to God or to a deity in offering sacrifice or victim. Uh, the presentation of something to God for the services of the church. So when he starts talking about uh, oblation, he's talking about how the the job of a priest is to get hold of the thing in front of them that is being offered to God and to take it through its proper uh, order of service or order of worship or order of sacrifice, and then lift it up to God, right? To prepare, uh, to prepare the sacrifice um, and then to lift the sacrifice up to God. So a priest is, stands between um, the, the, and lifts across the, the boundary or across the chasm between God and man, right? So um, the the priesthood of Adam from the beginning, his job was to get hold of the garden and lift it up to God, right? To to turn the you know, to to use the garden in the way God had said, and then everything that he did was a part of that priesthood because it's a it's a universal priesthood. It's not a um, you know, the it's not, it's a priesthood that is a part of his calling as a human, the kind of creature that he is. He is it's, a priest. He is a priest, right? So he doesn't um, become a priest at some point. Adam is created as a priest. And so, and then the nation of Israel, when they're restored to their, um, to the, to the role that Adam had been given when they're restored in their um, Adamic nature and their Adamic function they're called a nation of priests and so um the priesthood of the believer is was one of the things that we say was restored in uh the was was restored in the uh reformation you know uh, that that's something that we had forgotten and then we remembered in the church well uh as a good protestant uh robert Ferrar capen comes along and says the priesthood of the believer the priesthood of adam the priesthood of of mankind what does that actually mean for the way that we live right and so the that's what the entire book really is about um and he's trying to show it and do it all uh, and then describe it all at the same time um so the and you know the, the we talked last week about the how a priest deals with things right so if you if a grain offering shows up and and your job as the priest is to take the two stalks of grain for the grain offering and wave them before the lord right then you learn the motions you you learn what off what the offering is what's supposed to be there in the right motions of oblation right so a wave offering you know you take the two stalks of grain and you wave it back and forth in front of the lord that's what a wave offering is um, and then you take those stocks of grain and there's something that you do with them um and after that and then you bring them back in 50 days and you uh have the the offering at pentecost which is the wave offering of sourdough right so you've got the those two grain the the, the grain goes away 
gets glorified, gets gets aged, it gets becomes what it's supposed to be in sourdough, and then you bring it back and you wave it before the Lord, right? So 50 days between the grain offering and Pentecost. So that sort of thing is the priest's job to know what this thing is and how to lift it up to the Lord was the proper way to lift it up to the Lord. All right. So that, and, and so that's oblation. Well, he, and he says that what happens is that oblating, it takes something that is just a thing and pulls it into the story, pulls it into history. All right. So, um, I think a Christmas tree is a really good example, right? A, a tree that's just out in the out in the backyard or out in the woods or out on a farm, wherever. It's just a thing. It just and and, it, and nobody's ever going to notice it. It 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 sort of has its own history because it's a living thing, and um, you know whether trees are sentient or not, you know, is a long debate. And um, but they are just there. They they exist as a thing that's not really a part of history but a christmas tree that's chopped down that's brought into the house that is decorated with uh, ornaments you know we we've got ornaments from when i was a kid ornaments from when aaron was a kid that my kids now put on the tree and then ornaments they got it there you know when they were one when they were two they, they've got gifts and then the, the the angel that goes on the top was the angel that was on the top of Aaron's tree when she was growing up right suddenly this tree becomes a part of the history of our family because things made in the image of God one of the central things is that they are historical creatures they have a history they're a part of the story um, and everything else is a prop in the story right so um you the a a uh, um, you know, say a um, a deer that lives out in the woods. The deer is just going to live and die, and nobody's going to notice it. No, nobody's going to remember it. Whatever. If that deer becomes the first deer that a young, new, ten-year-old hunter um, shoots down with its, with his dad, right? Dad takes him out, teaching his son to hunt the first deer he brings down. That deer now becomes a part of the story and is remembered forever, right? It is passed down. And, um, the, the, the deer, it becomes a part of history by being brought into the story of a historical being, because a deer is not really a historical being. It doesn't have a memory, doesn't tell stories, doesn't tell stories from one generation to the next. There's not a, um, there's not cultural maturation, you know, you, whereas people mature and change and the cultures change over time. So they're different. They're, they're different sorts of creatures. Now they're both creatures, but one is made in the image of God and one is not. And God is the inventor, the purveyor, the director, uh, uh, and the intender of history, right? So he, he thought of history implements history, directs history, and is the end of history, right? Jesus is the end of all things. So the, um, and we, as people made in the image of a, that historical God, we bring things into history all of the time, right? We get hold of things and they become a part of the history through oblation because of our priesthood where the priest, the, the priestliness is the historical, um, is the, 
the priestliness of who we are is what brings things into our history, into our story. So, um, you know, the, and, and so he uses the example of the egg. Um, you know, uh, I like to use pancakes as an example, because that's, that's a big part of my family culture, right? We have been doing pancakes and throwing pancakes and, you know, they got eggs and that- shaping pancakes. And, you know, since my kids were really little, but yeah. what was that? I said, they got eggs in them. They do have eggs in them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so yeah. When, uh, you, um, yeah, if, if your wife is pregnant and she's supposed to be eating two eggs a day, you just make her a dozen pancakes. She can eat all dozen that gets her two eggs in, you know. <laughs> but, but the, but flour is just, um, you wheat that just grows in the stock and then dies. Um, it's not really a historical creature, but as soon as you pull it off and grind it up and, you know, I get it at the store and bring it home and it becomes pancakes and we make the pancakes say in the, you know, that my son turned 18. So he got a giant, you got two giant pancakes in the shape of a one and an eight, you know, on that, on that morning with chocolate chips in them. That's what we do. And, uh, the, now that becomes a part of his story. We've got a memory attached. We've got pictures. We've got, uh, we, you know, we tell the, tell the story of him becoming an adult and, you know, and that pancake became a part of the story, uh, that wheat, that became flower becomes a part of the story. So it's lifted into history because history isn't just, and what he, and the point that he's making when he says history, isn't just the order of events that happens is there's a materialistic view of history. That is the that it's a cause and that's a chain of cause and effect, right? That this chain of cause and effect is history. Well, that's not, that's not history, right? There is some cause and effect, but um, that that's not what makes it history, right? What makes it history is its relationship to the worship of, of God, right? The, mm. w- if something is never brought before the Lord, you know, um, a deer might have its own story technically, or its own history, or, you know, a, a, a sheep or a lamb or whatever might, but if it's never, um, lifted up before the Lord, then it never really becomes a part of history, because history is the story of man's relationship to God. How his movements how, towards his movements away that, uh, because Jesus, because history is about Jesus. So <clears throat> part of it, this is, this is huge because I, since we started talking about this, I think last week, I started realizing that almost all the failures that we currently have right now, I'm sure I can trace them back to man's dominion, right? Like that's the bottom line. All of our all of our failures are probably traced back there. And one of those, I was talking to David Reese about this like a couple of weeks ago. But you know, he, he marks out the fact that man's dominion takes place in three areas: in his prophet work, in his priestly work, and in his kingly work. Right? Man right. takes dominion through operating in those ways. And but the one that I think we fail at more often than not inside of evangelicalism is the priestly duties. Yeah. And. <laughs> because I don't Which is know the one that trains us for each of the other roles. So, oh, interesting. How does priestly duties train you for the rest of the other roles? So, because our priestly duties are, in a pretty straightforward sense, they're just obedience duties, right? You you get hold of something and you use it the right way, right? Uh, you you. Uh, oh, this is like garden one hundred and one. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, what are they supposed to do in the garden as priests? supposed to grab fruit say thank you for it and eat it 
and right. then not eat that one fruit over there in the middle of the garden, in the midst of the garden, right? So they, um, it's pretty straightforward. This is how you do that. Um, and then that is supposed to then, the, um, one, as they get good at that, it leads them out into the land uh, where the kingly uh, duties are, where there's gold there, the, the, they'll you know go out to Havilah and the gold of that land is good get the gems get you know begin that kingly work of gathering um, gathering and preparing in order to have kids and then they'll go out and they'll start gardens out in that area um, and then the prophetic work is to call in call something into existence that um, you know through faith and hope and love call a new thing into existence um and that's the wild work right they get out into the wilds and through the imagination of the prophet it says you know this wilds could become a garden right you you uh let's make a you, garden in arizona yeah you tame it exactly so so prophet work is taming work um king work is ruling work and priest work is obedience work but you get you go from obedience to kingship because you learn how to obey you learn the law that gives you the wisdom to then get out there into a hard situation right be you you you've been working with the the law uh it, by just obeying it and then you get out into a hard situation like solomon and you say huh i don't straightforward know the answer to this but i know but i've been trained in the law by obedient by obeying it um and so now i can make wisdom calls out out in the land out out in the rulership aspects of it um and then that raises you up it, it, that raises up prophets um now we you also once the fall happens um the 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 wilds often are ex gardens um you know the wilds are also within the heart of man and so the prophet work of taming ends up turning in a lot, but it's intended in the beginning to to face out. Uh, I'm not sure. Was that was that too much? No, at no, once, or is no, it... no, no. It wasn't. Um, but but I think this is why, like learning, like getting worship right is so important because worship is the priestly work. Right, you come before the Lord, and the 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 pastor walks you through worship, and and it's a tra it's training for the rest of the week, right? For the rest of the work, um, and so when things go so go wrong the way they've gone wrong in the modern world, right? The last fifty years, it's it's gone so wrong. Um, it's we've we have worship that's basically disc and it really goes back to the second great awakening i think um but you have worship that's disconnected from the historical worship of the church and you have worship that is priestless how is it priestless it doesn't have we you you no longer the the pastor's job is no longer leading the congregation in worship um we we think the pastor is primarily a prophet uh, now and then when that's secularized you know you get the what you have in the modern church but um 
the when the when the when the pastor becomes a you know he's up there trying to constantly um rile up the people and then tame them um which is sort of what we started to think of as as preaching so rather than like walking people through the scriptures walking people through the whole counsel of god helping them to know and understand um what it is and how to obey it right what and then walking them through worship you know with a liturgical liturgical worship um that says okay now you're coming into the presence of god now now humble yourself right that's what you do coming into the presence of god you humble yourself so here's a confession we're going to walk you through the confession i'm going to teach you how to confess your sins when, because and then and then remember that you live in the presence of god all the time so when you sin what do you do with it you confess your sins throughout the week as well right um and then you the now the word of god is is being opened now so now you open your ears right now you're going to listen you're going to hear right um and then how do we respond to that right we respond in prayer we come to the table we sing you know we're we're walked through liturgically the our priestly duties that trains us to be good kings right that's that's the training we need to be good kings and then you go out and you get the gold and you get the things and you bring it back into the house of god and you bring it as an offering you know here's i was out there god gave me this so i'm bringing some of it to the before the lord and i'm learning how to lift up um, you know, tithing is learning how to lift everything up that you are and have to the Lord. But you, you're, you're supposed to be trained by the pastor in tithing. We don't even talk about tithing anymore, right? We're we're afraid of it, um, or we don't talk about it as tithing, right? We, um, it's like the the pastor is a constant fundraiser. So uh, it's uh, it's hard <laughs> it's hard to be a good priest apart from being taught weekly by a good priest right yeah okay because i mean and and we're kind of afraid of that word priest i think because it was misused um for a time in the high middle ages the word was but you know and i don't think we should start calling pastors priests or i mean i if if you do it's okay i don't think that's a a sin um that because there was a high priest and then there were priests um, serving the high priest, and I think it's the same same sort of situation. The, the, it tells us in Isaiah that in the new heavens and the new earth, after the resurrection of the Messiah, that priests will be called from amongst the Gentiles. Right. So, um, so I don't I, I don't think that's a problem, but it's also not a necessity. Um, but we should know and understand and acknowledge that um, that the priestly duty of the church is worship that we gather together to worship, to lift up our praises, to lift up the name of the Lord um, so that it can ride on our praises, that it can be displayed on our praises. You know, A lot of those sorts of metaphors are lost when we're allergic to priesthood. All right. So there's so much here. What did I write? Um, <clears throat> I, I guess you kind of answered how we become good priests today. So then I guess do we... Do we want to take it from part of what I'm seeing, as I said, the failure of Christians to be good priests, but I'm not seeing, I'm seeing secularists, pagans, and non-Christians do an amazing job, it seems, as, as being priestly in some way. 
Now, they're being bad priests, but nonetheless, they have, they're, they're doing a priestly work. I mean, everybody is so upset at the DEI stuff, right? Um, diversity, equity, inclusion that's entered inside of the human resources in most of businesses. But what DEI is is a form of priestly work that tells you how you're supposed to treat people. Right. And it's all wrong. It's all backwards. It's all upside down. But that was a space that has been neutral inside of businesses for so long that somebody decided to say, oh, here's a place to oblate to our idols. Right. <laughs> and 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 not just in that way. That's just one way. But what about another way of, of seeing the priestly work inside of uh, technology? The iPhone, that's a priestly work. I mean, to take rocks and uh, plastics and all these other materials and to bring them together to do something that they didn't previously do before, kind of like that wave offering with the grain, and transform it into a form of communication where it allows voices and visuals to be transferred through space and time. What a magnificent thing to lift something up into history like that. Right. R right. I mean, just when you think about it, that's such a, that's a priestly work, but it's one that um, I think has benefited the kingdom, but hasn't come necessarily from people who are kingdom builders. Right. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that we can pillage, but I'm not seeing a lot of priestly work coming from the evangelical circles as much as it should. Am I thinking about this right? Yeah, no, I think you are. I think the, the, the one of, this is where some of, I think the Christian humanism um, of especially the, the reformational Christian humanism is, is helpful to remember because the, uh, the priesthood of mankind is something that we share with everybody. So the, the, the question oh, is never if, if people are acting priestly, it's to whom are they acting priestly? Right. So, um, so when we see them doing something uh, and they are acting as a priest, right they're they have discovered a use of silicone that benefits their neighbor, right? They, and they're lifting it up into history that way. The, um, that we can look at that and say, Hey, that's a priestly duty we can learn from because, um, but, but there's a, a different God to whom we are lifting it as Christians, but the action is going to be the same. Right. So, um, to when, uh, um, this is one of the things that I learned reading till we have faces, uh, CS Lewis's novel till we have faces. It's all about the, the worship of the gods, but, it shows you the way that the pe the pagan understanding of sacrifice was you gave something to the, g the gods to get them to leave you alone right they you kept it handing it off and it was a way of getting your of claiming of trying to get your own get control over your own space right so you you gave right. you, when you put something on the idol um, you know, you put a, a quarter hind of beef and uh, a uh, and a bottle of wine onto the idols um, onto the stone table for the idol. Then the the way that that idol 
um, worked, the idol and that the the offering to an idol worked was that when you put it there, then the that showed up spiritually on Zeus's table on Mount Olympus, and so then he would eat and drink and be busy, too busy to notice you. Right, so then you could go back to your life. Right, I've he, tricked you, the gods. Yeah, you are distracting the god. Um, and if you didn't do that, then they show up saying, "Hey, where's my stuff?" And then that causes problems, right? The god. Well, right. but Leviticus is actually the exact opposite. Mm. You want to be close to God, but death mm. is in the way, mm. right? So um, you identify, you, you are identified with your offering, right? You take your your lamb and you put your hands on it lean lean on the head of it three times lean your hands on the head of it three times until you're identified with it and then it dies and is burned up and goes into the presence of god and it takes you with it right so you get to be close to god right so leviticus but the actions are the same the difference is one you're trying to get god to leave you alone and one you're trying to get close to god Right, because you love God, God not you. to leave you alone. Do not leave right. me alone. Please do not leave us alone. <laughs> right, we want. Yeah. Right, and and it's Come the, tabernacle with us. Yeah, that's right. Because we want, we need you. Because the story, the history is, things were right when we were walking with God. When we stopped, things went bad. Right, right. and so in order for things to be fixed, we need God to walk with us again. Right. right. Whereas you read, you know, you read all the stories of Zeus. Things went wrong because Zeus showed up. Right. You ended he you uh, your bull ended up pregnant, your sister, your daughter, your wife ended up pregnant. Um ugh, the, what a tyrant. Zeus shows up and you it's like hide your hide your wives and daughters because Zeus shows up and he can't keep his zipper up. Like it's just wow. Up the, and so it's a completely different now, but then the actions of the priests are not the thing that's different, right? They are oblating. But it's this, it's the story that you're in, the history that you're in, it's the nature of the God you serve that is different. Right. So um, so when we see people, when you see somebody like Elon Musk doing all of the things that he's doing, that the actions that he is doing, you can look at that and say, okay, he's not a Christian. As far as I know, I don't actually know that much about him, but I don't think he's a Christian, right? He's not a Christian. Um so, but he is. The, the priestly actions that he's taking when he gets hold of things and he uses it to benefit people. You know, we looked at that video of him saying, I think we can restore the sight of the blind, the sight to the blind. Um, we don't say, well, he's a Christian. We can't learn anything from him. Right. We can say, well, he, he's a priest like us. Um, what would it look like to, to take that priestly action and lift it to the, to the true God? Right, lifted to the God who does restore sight to the blind, or loves the restoration of the sight of the blind. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know Elon Musk's story, so I don't know if he was raised in church or anything. If he, so why it is that he thinks that the restoration of the sight to the blind is a good thing? Um, Imago Day, <laughs> yeah, Imago Day stuff. But that's but when we say Imago Day, um, we, I mean, I hear Christians talk about it when they talk about. Defending the unborn, which is good, it was right. the, the Imago Day. Um, and sometimes when Christians get real mean, they say, "Hey, you're talking to the image of God," which I think is a good reminder. What we don't do well as Christians in the present is say, "Man, that guy's really good at what he does," and we do the same, and we're in the same, 
and we do the same thing, right? We're in the same, we have the same craft that we're working on in the same business, right? And they're really good at it. What would it look like to lift, um, to uh, oblate the way he does, but to the true and living God, right? So there's, um, and that, and that's a Christian humanism type of question. So part of what I was going to ask you, um, You know, if what we do, if um, so, uh, Sunday morning, um, part of or even let's say Levitical priesthood, their sacrifices was to bring God close. Matter of fact, some of the promises and the things that God was saying to the children of Israel is if you do these things, I will be with you. I will be your God. I will be I will tabernacle with you. If you do um, if you do not do these things. judgment right like expect things not to go well with you so now we have christ who is the fulfillment of all of that and so he is because of who he is he can do this and it's done so our priestly duties in one sense i should say it's um it's done it's fully complete because he is he can be drawn from constantly without ever running out being eternal so then our priestly duties that we do every day do they bring us, bring God closer to us as well? Or what do they do? What are the duties that we do as priests in the work that we do every day that has some sort of um, relational connection to God in, in, in fellowship? Yeah. Well, because really what it is is we're restored to our original priesthood, right? So the original priesthood, Adam, uh, Adam and Eve, they they aren't priests in the sense the the gulf between them was not um death was not sin and death right between right? Adam so and Eve. yeah so the the levitical priesthood was concerned with the gulf of sin and death right sin and death and guilt and shame those were the things that were between us and god right so um uh, but the Levitical priesthood was a restoration. I mean, the reason that this, you know, we mentioned the linen at the very end, right? The linen um, is one of the things that we're told is a sign or a symbol that they are acting as atoms in the garden. Um, you know that that God is is doing is is in the midst of this restoration project. Now they aren't all the way there yet because they are not allowed to drink wine, and they're not allowed and they're not allowed to take any light with them into the holy of holies. Right. So those are kind of the, there are there are different places and symbols that we're told um, in the book of Hebrews that this shows us that the um, that they they couldn't complete the thing the the thing that was needed in and of themselves right the the levitical priesthood couldn't but they were doing something right it was a real thing that they were doing god was restoring the human race he was developing the vocabulary um that we would need to you know he was he was um glorifying the vocabulary of mankind so that he would be able to communicate the word to us Right. So because how would how would we understand what God had done 
if the first child born to Eve was Jesus. And, and then all of a sudden he dies for us, right? We didn't, we didn't have the vocabulary yet. We wouldn't know and understand. We wouldn't be able to, um, we wouldn't be able to receive the uh, information even of the good news because there wasn't a vocabulary for the good news to be preached in yet, right? God took about 4,000 years to develop the vocabulary um, that could encapsulate his grace. That's how enormous that gracious act of God in Christ was. It took 4,000 years to build a dictionary big enough to communicate all of the things that Christ did on the cross, right? Um, the, the, and the book of Leviticus is a huge part of the development of that, that vocabulary. But the priests go in and they're told to only wear linen because you don't sweat wearing linen, right? They, you don't, they, they didn't wear wool. They didn't mix wool over the top of their linen um, because then they would be sweaty and you can't have sweat in the presence of the Lord. Sweat's, if you part, of the, it's like part, sweat's of the part of the curse, right? So, so the work that they did um, was sweat-free work because it was cursed it was curse lifted curse lifted work right so and so the, that that's why a lot of the things that are actual symbols of the curse pictures of the curse are not allowed in in there right so if somebody's you you got weird ones like if somebody's testicles are crushed they can't be a priest in in there anymore they can still work as you know in some of the outside um, things, but they can't, you know, outside around the tabernacle, they can't be a priest inside because the um, the seed promises uh, were were curse lifting promises, and so the seed, you know, the crushed seed in a man's testicles were, weren't allowed. Wait, uh, I just, but then there are other times when people th- think things that people might mistake for curses, but. Like oh no, even without the fall, people were going to go bald. That was the, that was an intention. You know, there are intentional things that show our age that God want, that are supposed to be wisdom things, right? And God wants us to not mistake things that are actually symbols of wisdom. Like it doesn't matter if you go bald in the front or the back, you're still clean, right? You could still be a priest. Though those things don't, we don't know even know what to do with them, and we just kind of giggle like, hey baldness is not unclean well but why is that well it's because baldness is not a sign of the curse baldness um is something that comes with age and with wisdom right you're uh you you say we we even say this sort of thing now you like oh man i had three kids and pulled all my hair out right because we know that um baldness should come with with a gaining of wisdom you lose your hair uh, because of the pressures of life that you're put through and that the, but, and when those pressures of life are embraced by faith, they produce wisdom. Um, when we retain our hope through those pressures of life, we, it produces wisdom. Uh, when we love people through those pressures of life, it produces wisdom. And so baldness should be a symbol of wisdom, not a symbol of, uh, of the curse. So you've got those sorts of things that, if you when you wrestle with the book of Leviticus and try to understand, it gives you a vocabulary of maturity, uh, a vocabulary of uh, of priesthood, a vocabulary of of hum, uh, of what it means to be human, um, and the because that's what priestliness does. It restores our humanity. 
So then it has, having been restored, our relationship is already intact in Christ then. So then, right. so then the Levitical work that we get from the priest there, that is what Christ has fulfilled. He's restored that reality, right? Right. <laughs> so then, and then and restored it back to what Adam was supposed to be able to do with his priesthood there. So there's a two different types of priesthood then that are operating. One is concerned with the death and, and gets us to a restored place to have fellowship with God. But then there's this other part of priestly work that actually takes a thing to its intended end. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That the, so there's the, the... we are stuck. I'm sorry, man. I just noticed we are stuck in, you know how we were talking about that evangelicals can ever seem to get past the broader intention of justification. We talked about that so much. It's like we get stuck on justification only in a salvific way and less and not as much in a more restorative right. reality. Right. We get stuck on saved from and never get to saved to. Right. Right. Matter of fact, no, we have a save too, and that save too has nothing to do with down here. Right. Yeah. Right. Whatever that save too is, it's not on earth. It's not for the Lord from the things he's given us in creation. We've completely disconnected Genesis from our restoration, completely disconnected the priesthood of Adam from our restoration. And so now we sit around here and just kind of float <laughs> waiting for that moment to be taken out instead yeah. of actually being priest and the and, and, and restored priest to do things that glorify God with in the same way Adam was supposed to. Anyway, you were, you were going, I just, I just thought about that. I'm like, man, we, there's so much for us to get. There's so much for us to get in this, in this understanding the priesthood of Adam and the priesthood of Christ. And, and so I don't know, do we need to start asking restore to what exactly? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's a big part of it is we need to start asking like, what are we restored to? What, what was Adam's original mission? What was the original mission of the family? This is why, you know, I'm doing the class for, um, for, uh, the pub university on the mission of God for the family is because I don't think that now. What was that? Is it? Can you finally sign up for that now? It, by the end of the day, it should be yes. up and ready. Yeah. Okay. So Everyone. We, we've been working on those technical difficulties. I think we figured it out. But yeah, the mission of God for the family. The reason that, um, that I think we act like mo- a lot of Christian books on marriage are very worldly, and I don't mean that as an insult. I just mean it. it um, we what we do is we take our cues for the family from the world and then we use Jesus to accomplish the world's end for our family, the world's. I've heard you say that before. I just didn't know what you meant by that. I think I get a little more and more of what you mean by that now. And so I think, but I think the question that we should ask is what was God's mission for the family? Why when God said, Hey, here's this thing that I'm creating family here's what it's for. That's the question we don't ask. And so um, we're going to do seven sessions on God's mission for the family and, and dig in deep. And I think dig in probably deeper than you th- realized was possible. 
Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, um, because I think there's so much to undo um, and to replace, but it's so much more beautiful. What God intended for the family is so much more. You, our our imaginations are very thin, and our hopes and dreams and you know desires are so small when God gives us these huge, huge things, and we're like, eh, you know, I'll take one tic tac, and he's like, no, there's a whole feast. I'm like, oh, I'll just take. I'm good with a tic tac. Yeah, I just like smelling it from the outside door. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, where can people go to sign up for that course? Because that's well, going to be the first F- one for the Pub University. Yeah, first one for the Pub University. It's FLF. Um, the the FLF website of the top right corner. There's a little drop down menu, um, and it is. Um, I I don't remember what the FLF website is. FightLaughFeastNetwork.com. FightLaughFeastNetwork.com, and then there's a drop down menu. In that drop down menu, you can get to this course, right? Yep. Okay. So, Jason, there's so much still left here to talk about. So, um, let's spend the next thirty minutes going through Chapter Seven. The okay. main thing, I, I'm, I I hope everybody goes and gets this book, The Offering of Uncles, The Priesthood of Adam and the Shape of the World, essential for you to go through. You know, part of the reason that we started going through this was because after the conference, the Fight Left East conference at the Ark Encounter, um, you know, we had a show on Christian nationalism. And I, I remember asking, hey, man, what'd you think about it? And you were basically like, we are having a conversation that's so far um past where we actually are you know and you said you know so you brought up this book to try and help us get back to some of the basics to get if we ever get there we're not going to get there the way that people think we're going to get there right right we're going to get there understanding our proper priesthood and you know I think that's a I think that's a good I think that's a good re, a good thing to think about because a a priest has standards objective realities of what he must do and operate in in order to be able to fulfill the calling that he has rightly when I think about how we talk about Christian nationalism it's kind of up in the air about how we do it and when I see things like that I'm like wait a second no, no, there's an objective way to go about bringing in a Christian nation. And it isn't by, and, and I know that um, it isn't by necessarily just power and force. And I'm not speaking yeah. of militarily. I'm just speaking of like, we're going to make sure that we have the the power as the rulers and the leaders to force you into something. That's That's not, that's not it. That ain't it. It's actually through being good priests. Um, no, no one from Apple or from Amazon or from Google have to force us into anything, <laughs> right? The way that they function, uh, I think your camera's saying, hey, man, it's just nodding his head. Yeah, I'm talking. It is. Uh, um, I don't know what it's doing. I got. They have created such a beautiful 
set up in a beautiful environment, beautiful world that even some of the things that we don't like, we go along with because it's so good, you know? Right. <laughs> and, and everybody's, you know, it's funny. A lot of people worry about the pagans. What about the pagans? It's like, well, what about being a good priest? What are you called to do? What is righteousness? What is justice? How do you care for widows and orphans? Like, how do you, anyway, it takes good priests and even to be able to have some of these conversations, right? And and we don't have that down yet. Um, and so, yeah. anyway, yeah, that's my, why we, my my Bible reading was in the um, was in Deuteronomy, um, and the section when he says, "If you obey the voice of the Lord, then I will give you all of these things." Right, and I that's a that's something that i think we we don't take seriously the fact that god says things like um you know good good laws are a gift that that we receive that we say thank you for that it's something that that it um i think we have bought into the belief that um, America created itself with democracy, and then we're going to recreate America with better democracy. And we wouldn't say that, but I we act. I think do think we act like that's true. And I, and I'm not saying don't you know vote the best you can and you know all of that. But what I'm, but I do think that right now, if we were to get Christian nationalism, all the Christian la- nationalists would say look at this nation that we've built <laughs> right not and not all of them but i do but um you know there uh and you i think you all that's also it's also weird and ironic to see so many people opposing um the idea of a christian the idea nation. of a christian yeah. nation right so like i um my issues have never been um it's a it, it, it's a question of what it, which road do we take to get to the, something we agree that we should want <laughs> right so we we look at it and say this we okay we agree on on what we want but i look at the map and think this road gets us there you look at the map and think that road gets us there let's have a discussion about yeah roads. no but those the people that aren't invited to that particular conversation are the ones that don't believe we should even go that go in that direction Right. right. Those yeah. are the people who you're just talking about that are like um like Owen Strand and uh, unfortunately it seems like some of my guys at G three, which are like, hey, um, not so much need of a Christian nation. And I'm just like, yo, <laughs> hey, if we're to be priest, <laughs> right. What, I don't know how you the, don't and, lift up if you're supposed to lift up your home, if you're supposed to lift up your church, and you're supposed to lift up individuals, which I want to talk to you about in just a second. How do you not lift up your nation? That's what priests do. Yeah. Like, it's not it's not an option. Somebody's going to lift it up. It is going to be lifted up to a God. Yeah, That's you can't escape. It's yeah. not a question. And, now, we can talk uh, about how we do that. I'm willing to have that conversation. Right. And, um, you know, I would take the blandest form of Christianity you could imagine over against the, the human grinding gods that we currently are serving. 
right? The, the, the human, the human hating gods, the, the human devouring gods that we currently serve. I don't know how we can't look at it and say, but that, but this God hates people. You know, this what? God eats people, Jason, right? We've got this God requires human sacrifices. We don't want that, right? We can agree on that, right? We don't want a God that requires human sacrifice minimally, right? Like you, like you say, well, no. Look, is it going to be Anglican or Baptist? Like I'll take either. (laughs) Jason, (laughs) when you you feel comfortable saying that there's no difference between secular secularism and Christendom, what you said doesn't matter. If you can, if you can comfortably say that with your mouth. No difference between secularism and Christendom. <laughs> right. Then, 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 no, you, no one. That's we can't even get there. Yeah, we can't even say, get well, there. Look, we burned eighty people alive at the stake in Christendom. So, right. I'm okay with the Holocaust. <laughs> like, what, like, how many Jews have to die before secularism is seen for what it is? <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, no, real talk. But I mean, when we have Christians arguing like that, though, yeah, that's that's bad. That's that's a that's bad priestly duties, bro. Bad priestly (laughs) duties. I also think that we the myth of the neutrality of education in education is a big part of it, right? So because we're when you have people coming along and saying like, "Well, I can teach you about the Crusades," and then they give a false account but we don't know it's a false account because we have bought into the the myth of the neutrality of education um i think that's that this is what you get right so this is why karl marx who understood that educate education about history isn't neutral said give me all the history teachers in the country and we'll have marxism in a generation all right you gonna make i don't want to go down that you done brought up the crusades and we'll be there forever if we if we start because i'm about to ask you Crusades. We got to talk about the Crusades at another time, man. Another time. Let's, Let's get it. to chapter seven. The main. But if anybody thing. wants the two volume history of the Crusades by Oxford Press is amazing. Oh, really? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, it's oh, really whoa, good. whoa. Okay. Let's just go to Amazon right now and let's just go let's find see if it. It's even for sale. I, I had to get it used because uh, this is the thing is great books right now. They they just pull them out of print. What's and it that called? Is the way they, um, I think it's the Oxford History of the Crusades. I got it at a uh, at a library sale where they were. Um, oh, Oxford History of the Crusades. Jonathan Riley Smith, paperback, Lost Cities of the Ancient World, uh, English Society of the Crusades, Oxford Historical. Let's go grab I got the Oxford Illustrated History of the Crusades. I don't know if that's it. I'm not sure. I'm checking for the volumes. See, this is why I didn't. Oh. I knew if we went down this road, this was going to happen. Is it by Jonathan Riley Smith? There's a Kindle version. I'll, I'll, I'll find it and find it because I'm gonna get that one because I'm about sick of folks talking about the Crusades, and I didn't read enough stuff to be like, wait a second, that's not how this started. 
Um, anyway, all right. So we'll, we've got to find that book. History of the Crusades. Write that down. All right. So the main thing. When I don't know where to start on this. Can I just start the, right at the front? There's a couple yeah. of lines that are pretty amazing. But one of the things he makes the point of is that when we are oblating, did I say that right? Use it right? Oblating, yeah. When we're oblating something that is physical or material, that seems fairly simple because that thing is not acting on us. We are acting on it, right? Yeah. So as a priest, a priest that comes in and says, oh, here goes, like he says, an egg. And we take that egg and we do scrambled eggs and we do fried eggs and we do cakes and we do um, puddings and we do all sorts of things with the egg. And all of a sudden we've lifted this egg into history in multiple ways and we're still not done figuring out how to lift the egg into history and being a good priest for egg. But that thing is us acting on it. Right. How do you be a good priest and what does a priest look like when you have another human being <laughs> we're not going to do the same thing to a human being right though they are priests too and yet somehow we're to be priests to them and they're to be priests how does that even work and how do you lift someone else in the history yeah i mean the the by treating them according to what they are and um and under so the my go-to verse when we start talking about this is Ephesians four, mm. um, and uh, he said this is the neither give place to the devil. Um, I we don't know what to do with passages like that, right? But the reason we don't know what to do is because we have an a historical. Uh, we do a, we read a historically we so don't give place to the devil. Well, what, who gave place to the devil? Adam, right? Adam gave place to the devil. So when he, when he starts talking about undoing the works of the devil, uh, the, uh, don't give place to the devil that we should immediately say, okay, we're talking, this is an, this is an Adam and Eve section, right? We're talking to Adam and Eve, how to be a good Adam, how to be good Eves, good Adams and good Eves. And, um, the the and so it goes this is ephesians 4 27 um neither give place to the devil then he says let him that stole steal no more but rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needs right so uh, let me i'll switch translations so that I don't have to give english lessons while we go um, <laughs> <laughs> right so so don't give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Let no corrupting word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Uh, do do not give, and, and then he explains what that means. Do, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. But let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, um, you know, argumentative speech, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. 
and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. Right. So he he's giving this is how we don't give place to the devil who comes in to to seek and to devour and to destroy. Right. So this is the this is the opposite of idolatry. Right. So um when you lift things up to an idol, um it, there's always a demon uh waiting in the in the wings to eat and devour uh, so here, here's the opposite but but here's the the amazing thing right so he says how do we do that we work hard with our own hands and then when we see somebody we have a generous open-hearted readiness with our stuff to help those that are in need and then he starts he goes into the way we talk and i think this is really really important um, in the way that we think about our neighbor, our neighbor is made of words. They were created by God out of words. And so as priests, a big part of how we oblate is in our, in our speech. And he, and he, in the things he talks about words, learning to oblate words, but then here we see that we oblate with words let no corrupting word proceed out of your mouth. Um, the word that it, it let no tearing down words be spoken, but instead that which is necessary for edification. This is the word that our, our word edifice comes from building, right? So our, our neighbor is a construction project made of words, but so it's, so you begin God begins the construction project by building them out of words. And then he brings us in as priests to complete the construction project of our neighbor by, by the way we talk to one another. And it, it imparts grace. Our words can impart grace to people. Um, this is, this is, uh, how would you put this? This is sacramental language, the impartation of grace to the hearers, but it's the, but it's based on what kind of creature our neighbor is. Right. So, um, and then he says, don't grieve the Holy spirit whom you were sealed for the day of redemption by, and these, here's the way you do that with the, with your tongue, when you're talking to your neighbor, talking bitterness, which is a harshness, um, wrath, right? Uh, anger, clamor, which is you know uh, unnecessary argumentativeness, uh, and evil speaking. You know, put those things away from you with all malice, and malice is the desire to destroy, right? So he says the way you talk to your neighbor, you can. That's that's what it looks like to have words that tear down. Those are those that is um, you know those are sledgehammers when you go into a, the construction your neighbor's house if you bring a sledgehammer and you start busting through the walls they're gonna they're saying oh no that's don't do that to my house right but that's what you're doing to your neighbor when you speak that way right um and then he says and this is i think this is incredible because this verse i think would be treated like what well, the next verse is but be kind to one another tender-hearted which in the greek and in the english but we don't think of it this way is the opposite of hard-hearted right hard-hearted 
and tenderhearted are opposites. Um, hard-hearted means uh, unwilling to forgive. Tenderhearted means willing to forgive, right? That our posture, so this is assuming that there's a softness that we have towards people. There's a tenderheartedness. And then he says, forgiving one another, right? So he, he knows we're dealing with sinners because he, right in the midst of it, he's like, you're going to have to forgive one another. That's part of, part of it. Even as God in Christ forgave you, right? So we look at the way God has treated us. And then we look at the image of God in front of us and we return what God has treated to us. We can't return it to him directly. We return it to his image, which is in front of us, right? So this is a, um, this is why we don't create images for worship because he's already given us images, right? This is a second commandment issue. Um, we the the way we treat our neighbor is a second commandment question. Um, don't make uh, images of God. He's already supplied you with images to to return love, to return uh, gifts to him through. Uh, so the, the way that you, know, you had a statue of Zeus, like we talked about, and you give it um, meat and wine and that meat and wine shows up in front of God. We're told that the way we treat our neighbor <coughs> rises up before the Lord, right? Like that's a sac sacrificial language. The way we treat our neighbor um, rises up before the Lord. So uh, the, but kindness is i mean people treat it like it's weakness or it is uh ineffective or you know and and you have people say you know tell hey don't be nice christians aren't christians aren't nice i think i get what they're saying but that's also just not true <laughs> kindness the overlap of kindness and niceness is is a lot right there's a lot there now there's a nice there's a kind of niceness that is um that is self-serving that says i don't want to uh you know I, I i don't want to risk anything with this person and so i'm a yes man but that's not that's not what the kindness here is talking about yes man sort of kindness but if you say um hey be kind to one another and what that means is argue with everyone all the time uh, tell people that you hate everything that they do and and that uh that that they're you that that they are terrible and everything about them is hate worthy you're not being kind right and so if you say well hey you know niceness isn't a virtue um so yeah but kindness is and there's a lot of overlap between kindness and niceness so um that this is this is one of the things that i think is just tribalism people that are not part of our tribe you get to treat in inhumane ways in mm. um, in a tribalistic understanding of things. We aren't given that option as Christians. Now, he is in the middle of talking about the church. And so um, I think we first have to do this priestly oblation of our neighbor as construction projects that we are helping complete, building to their intended end in the church. Because... He, that's what he is talking about, right? So if you go back up to the beginning of Ephesians 4, he is, um, verse 15, but speaking of the truth and love may grow up in all things to him who is the head, Christ, 
from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love right so he's he's talking about the building up of the church and then he gets down to the building up of your neighbor who is also a body who is also right so he he is a he's talking about the church as right here that's where your kindness and forgiveness should be the most um intense yeah right yeah um but well and that we can't get it anywhere well i you know i tend to believe that part of what we see inside of the engagement social media and otherwise i don't believe that these men and really talk to their families or wives any different Right, like because there's so it's not that they don't have kindness, it's that it's not practiced enough, right? Because you don't see it, you just don't see it. And when you do see it, you're like, Oh wow, that man is being fair, he's been it's amazing how kindness works. Um, yeah, but, but yeah, I think you're right. So it's, I don't think that we practice being kind to our own children and to our wives, which are the closest ones to us. No wonder why the people inside of the body in the church are having a hard time. I, I just think it always goes all the way back. It goes all right. the way back. And when right. you see something that's happening in front in front of people, you're like, I can bet pretty sure that his home is probably built like this. Right. Yeah. Right? Well, but because I, you can't help but be a priest. There's no private priest and public priest. How you act, that's it. Yeah. Right? You're doing and it both that, ways. Because the next verse is, in five, in chapter five is therefore be imitators of God as dear children and right. walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us and offering a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. Right. Mm-hmm. He, this is, he's talking about our priestly work. Um, but right in the middle of it, he says, well, children imitate their parents. Look at your father, God, your father and imitate him because that's what children do right so he's he's uh and he's a, when and then he says so walk in love um you know i the i love when you know we're hanging out with families with dads that just um you know sneak a hug from their kids you know sneak from the, as they run past and right there that getting getting too close to dad means you're love is going to spill over onto right, you right right that, that kind right. of I, I love seeing that with fathers um that just you know that they're like oh my kid got close enough that i could grab him and hug him um that that kind of uh mentality that is imitating god right that that you that it spills over on us is and i, I mean i think that priestliness is just it's 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 so fundamental that we forget about it we don't sanctify it that's really good all right so i got like eight minutes here with you and that that's helpful that i think you just worked through that really well of how we lift up as priests other people who are priest right like what does it look like to do that <clears throat> one of the so how do we um this has helped me when i think about work i think everyone has taken 
at the conference, the Fight Life East conference, did you hear the Business Makers Conference at all? Were you there for yeah. that? Yeah, I was up there for that. That to me is right in line with all of this conversation with work, um, David Bonson's talk and Joe Rigney's talk about the poetry of creation, the priestly duties of man to work. I, I think that because we don't understand our oppor our opportunity to be priests, the calling that we have as priests, work is a horrible place for us to be. Like we don't like it. It's inside a society. Work is not something that we get to do. We just got to do it. Yeah. We know we have to. We know it's baked into the cake and we don't like it. Versus being the kind of priest where you wake up and say, what is it that God has planned in my work today that I get to oblate? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so it changes your perspective on work. And so I've noticed that work and the priestly duties are connected. And we have the hate that we have for work is the hate that we have to be good image bearers, to right. be priests. Right. And we haven't made the connection between the two. And it, and, it, and it shows one of the areas in the book, I can't remember where it was, but he talks about dressing. Yeah. And he talks about clothes. That's I love that section. Uh, where is that at? He talks about women where he's like, one is a frump, a tomato, and a woman. Yeah. Right? And he talks about how that they dress. And it's so, he does this wonderful thing where he's lifting up words and you're like, you get to enjoy it because of the way he writes it. But then he just, he talks about the priestliness of a woman in her dress, just in her dressing alone. Right. And, and the glory of man. I, I can't remember where that is. Oh, I wish I could get in and read it. Uh, well, it's. Um... But we don't even think. Like when you're putting on your clothes, and this is what I think some of the masculinity stuff, the movement that the masculine movement that's happening right now. I think they're trying to get at this. I think so, same, too. Yeah, I, I think they're trying to get at this. And it's funny because I don't think a lot of the older guys know what they're trying to get at. Right. Which is like right. really bad, which means we've had some bad priests along the line. But the younger guys are like, yo, be a man. Get up in the morning. Dress nice. Put on a tie. Iron your shirt. Do something good with your dressing, my guy. Right. Right. Work, work, work with your body. Make your body better than it was before. And they, all these young men don't even know they're reaching to be good priests. Right. Right. They don't have they they haven't been given a vocabulary for how for how to do what they're doing towards the true god because right. we don't have this vocabulary of priesthood right, right. and and yeah he, he when he's talking about um the the frump the tomato or the woman yeah. he, he says the frump is a woman who by either ignorance or choice does not really dress at all she simply puts things on the tomato Ugh. on the other hand um, as far as she is concerned, her chief concern is to display her body. Um, but alas, the clothes she selects display only her unpriestliness, her inattention to what her body really looks like. She has, poor girl, accepted the fetish. Uh, uh, she has accepted the fetishes as the truth. She has poured her body into a shape it does not fit, set it oh. upon heels on which it cannot walk, and decorated it with whatever irrelevancies happen to have caught the current fancy. Um, the, uh, she draws no doubt the lioness's share 
of looks and whistles, but only because the crowd is as blind as she is. She always makes me a little sad. I see her as living evidence of the way we waste ourselves. If she is young, I am sad because she could be so much more stunning than she is. And if she is old, she breaks my heart. At 55, tomatoes should not be on the stand at all. Lord have mercy. Uh, uh, it's, and, and what I love is we, we, what, we have been ineffective in, help, in teaching um, young women to be modest. We've, that we've been ineffective at it. We don't know how to do it. This next section that he gives, I think, is the reason why. Mm. He says, but then there are women. Yeah. And New York, since it has lots of everything, has women on practically every street. Real pieces of history moving graciously past my history as I walk. Rich and poor, old and young, tailored and casual. How they strike, how they stun, how they ravish. All praise to their tailors, uptown or down. And greater praise to themselves, for they have exalted their bodies and put on robes of glory. And, and, and I think, so. Um, the at the end... Um, he says, here at least is one fool who will not rush in. He says, let women only remember their royal priesthood and vest themselves accordingly, right? This is the positive vision that we don't give, which is why we end up talking about modesty so much um, and, and trying to uh, guilt and shame into modesty because they don't have a positive vision for what clothes are for. I mean, this was one of the conversations I had uh, with, uh, we've had with, you know, my wife and my daughters at different times is like, Hey, what do you think of these boots? You know, I, I remember when the boot, you know, there's like a phase where big boots were in or fashionable or something. And, and uh, they'd say, what if you think of these boots? And I'd say, Oh, uh, no, not those boots. And they say, well, what about these boots? Like, yeah, those boots are fine. He's like, and, the, and I remember my daughter saying, but these boots are a lot flashier than those boots. What's the difference? And saying, well, those boots say, look at my boots, which is fine. Those boots over there say, look at my ass. That's not fine. <laughs> right. Like, right. They, those two boots, it's not which boot is flashier. It's what boot says what. Uh, Am I allowed to say? Yeah, 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 here? yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. The, but the point is you're not supposed to say that, right? That, um, and your boots shouldn't say it either, but the, there's nothing wrong with saying, look, because at you're boots. a priestess, right? Because you're a priestess, right? So, so you're, if you're vesting yourself for glory, you can have flashy boots that are cool boots that, and that say, Hey man, look at these boots. I love walking. I love being out in the snow. I love, I love the, I, you know, I love this part of the year where you have to wear big furry boots. Like that isn't the problem it's saying, look at my boots, but there's a way to that. You, there are shoes that actually are trying to put other things on display, you know, I, right? I, and I that's the, come, that's yeah, always that's right. the, you, um, and, and that's, you're trying to give your daughters, um, a vision for, uh, a, a vision for their, royal priesthood that they're priestesses um and part of that is you know god god gave me a body that i'm supposed to use well and that i'm supposed to glory in um but there's a way to put the body on display um that says the purpose here's the perp you know the purpose of my body is 
is something other than what God gave me this body for. And, um, but we, when we don't have a positive vision for the body, right? Like one of the things that young people's bodies are supposed to do is catch one another's eye and draw them towards one another in marriage, right? You can't do that wearing a potato sack where it doesn't, you're not supposed, and that's not supposed to do that, right? The, um, that's God's idea. Um, all of that was God's idea, making bodies attractive to one another. Um, so you can't say, well, let's make sure that never happens, right? You, um, but there's a way to put it on, to put the body on display um, that says, hey, I'm a consumable. And you right. don't want to ever just, you don't want to ever communicate that you're a consumable because you will attract consumers. You want to um, put your body on display such that says, I understand that well, uh, I, I understand that my intended end is glory. Are you someone who's interested in helping uh, me reach glory? Well, and you got to remember, if you're a priest or a priestess, you're always lifting it into history and causing other people to be lifted into that same history. Right. Right. So if you're lifting up your body as a consumable to be appreciated that way, you're not just taking yourself there. Right, yeah. Right? You're actually bringing other people into that history and into idolatry. Into that story, yeah. Into that story, right? And so that's that's um, it's a horrible form of priestly duties, right? Versus right. Um, for a man to look at a woman and to say, oh my goodness, praise God. Like that's, that's <laughs> right. a, that's a, that's a different, like you done did right. So it's a work of art. That's yeah. a work of art. That is, I mean, I got to stop it off for a second. God is good, right? There, there's a way to do that, that honors God, that, that makes you um, point because you're, you're a form of glory. So how you adorn yourself brings glory either to your father or to your God. I mean, I, I, right. I've, I've seen women's like, man, she's got a good dad. Like, um, right. uh, I've always seen, uh, and he kind of says it here too, but women who, uh, are offering themselves as a tomato usually have forgotten the face of their father. Right. Yeah. And it's obvious. And my daughter says, when we see girls like that, she's like, oh, poor thing. Her dad didn't love her. <laughs> right. Like he, and so, yeah. but, but our, our tendency to, um yeah and which should be an opportunity it should be a gospel opportunity right and i you know and we don't we don't take that because i think we are we are scared i think we fear um the body Mm. and the power of the body and you know um whereas if if you love your spouse and love the covenant and love you know, love the the you don't say um you know you, you it's you don't see oh how would you put it you um you see somebody who doesn't know their own what god made them for yeah right you and don't so you have see, compassion for them you have compassion um, now that doesn't mean, you know, you run into the whorehouse and say, Hey, I'm here to get some converts, right? You, right. you still take all of the, the, uh, wisdom of Proverbs with you, but there's a way, um, there's a, there's a, a, a way 
that um that you know that says you were created as a glory bearer um but why are you why are why are, why are you seeking something different um and and it is it's always you know it's always complex so well in every situation too like oh, all right so i think on page i want you to find this one i think cuz we got to go there as he talks about hair um and faces and he basically takes the whole face and turns to eyebrow page 102 first paragraph um i got to read yeah their hair their hair is set with no respect yeah. i but before you read that i wanted to read this um this is such a good example of priestly stuff but the unadorned body is indeed a glorious thing like the unadorned apple and i thought that was like oh yeah that makes sense like it is and he says but the man who will rob me of my pie, my strudel, my turnovers, and my sauce is unhistorical and mad. I will have no truck with him. An apple vested with pastry is not less but more of an apple. I thought it's an a- apple displayed and regnant, which means uh, royal. Uh, I didn't underline that part. Yes. But yeah, that's a better way to end. But, you know, I thought about that, and, and that's not something that we, you know, when it comes to dressing, you know, we, we, um, there, he, he goes into this too. It's like Christ is going to give us robes in heaven, right? So we don't yeah. technically go back. We advance beyond. It's better then, right? Um, and I thought that was really good how, um, the, the priestly duty of man in this is to take something like an apple and to make it better. I don't, I think apple pies are amazing. It's strudels and that's a great. And then, but uh, so is dressing though. We right. should think of ourselves and our bodies like that apple that gets, you know, turned into so many different things for the betterment of itself. Right. And it's like, Oh, how do we oblate our clothes? to the Lord, our dressing, and and do it in such a way that it honors God and and brings glory to God. And others see it and like, wow, that's that's amazing. I wanna, I wanna dress better, right? I wanna, I wanna be dressing like that. Yeah. You know, um but it's we we so quickly try to turn it into a rule. Right. Right. And I think that's what that is the that's what ends up ruining it rather than the oh, well, priests know, are driven by joy, right? Exactly. That's what I was getting yeah. at with work. Like that's what we've turned work into a rule, and so instead of like, no, this is a joy. Like you were supposed, you were made to work, and the 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 part of the the sin problem was that you got tired, right? But you were supposed to do. Could you imagine working without being tired? Oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> Right. The things you can get done, right? I mean, and so you're right. We've made them rules, and we've taken away all the joy from it. But our duty as priests is nothing but abundant joy to be able to do, and to, and and then it turns us into kings. That you know, what is God hidden in this world? You know, right. <laughs> who get to go discover and find things out? Proverbs twenty five, right? But we've we have made it. Just we've taken the life out of it. And we've we've drained it for all the value that it is, and so priesthood ultimately, for a lot of people, isn't a joyful duty. 
You know, yeah. I don't know how you'd be a priest and not post millennial either. That's just it doesn't make any. <laughs> yeah, well, I think when when it's a when you're a priest that is running on fear, um, you know, rather than joy, I think you you lose that eschatological. Uh, Interesting. What does a fearful priest look like? Does he not get things done still, or what is he? No, he does. He, he he worries about. Um, he he worries oh, so much faith. about doing the wrong thing that he does nothing. Uh, and he doesn't operate in faith either, because if he's not operating in, in in faith, he believes that God is going to bring what he's working on to its intended end. Right. right. If he operates yeah. in fear. And this and this faithless, yeah, he won't accomplish the the end of what you, he's yeah, doing. You don't you you don't think um, historic. You don't think uh, future because you're always worried that you know I'm going to do the wrong thing and get smashed. Um, and you know it's a the um, oh man what the it's a, it's regulative principle um, misapplied, right? Mm. So we're we're always looking for permission to do things um rather than uh you know looking for the fences on the edges knowing that we've got we've got permission to do all the things just don't go past the the fence right, right. within the fence you got permission to do all the things um <laughs> rather than you know the uh waiting around to be told you're allowed to do this you're allowed to do this you're allowed to do this Right, and I and I I do think that's a misapplication of the regular principle. I don't think that's the right way to even apply the regulative principle in its regulative principleness. But that's a, a whole another topic. But the, um, when God says, "Hey, go garden this place," um, and you say, "Well, to which shovel do I use? Which?" tree do i start with god okay wait around when god tells me which shovel to use where to start um which thing to do rather than saying like well god said let's garden it if i if if he shows up and i mess something up he'll he'll correct me and we'll fix it but he's i'm just gardening right i'm doing the i'm doing the job and if i don't have all of the knowledge i need he's got god doesn't get you know god doesn't smash us because we didn't know something or, you know, um, or because something was hard or because, you know, um, something failed or, you know, that that's not a, that's kind of like the servant with that. It's unworthy servant who goes and hides stuff because, you know, I know that you are a rough taskmaster. So, right. Rather than saying like, okay, I got, uh, 10, I, I got 10 talents. Let's get them. Let's get them invested. Right. Let's, where, where are we invest in these talents? Right. It's a different, a different mentality. Um, was there anything else you wanted to grab out of here that was really good? I know the I thought the faces thing was pretty good. Um, yeah, I I love I I mean I like this whole section, um, you know the but the uh, the why do you have a beard? Seventeen answers are possible. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, simple. I like it. Taciturn. I just do sheepish. Lots of men have beards. Rude. None of your business. Cowardly. Oh, don't you like it? Confident because it's manly. Overconfident. It keeps women away. Practical. Uh, in in respect to the efficient cause is what it says in Latin. Because I don't shave. That's a that's an Aristotelian joke. Agnostic. I don't know. I stopped shaving and it grew. 
theological but cautious. You will have to ask God. Uh, Theological. uh, I was tired of cutting myself every morning. Devout. It is a gift to God. Practical. I look more paternal with one. Meditative. It would be ungrateful to die without having seen it. (laughs) Uh, Practical. uh, With respect to my vanity it's what it says in latin it it hides my weak chin theological with respect to final causes god meant man to have one practical um it tickles my wife (laughs) that's just just his the the uh the joy with which he embraces the world um i think is is uh one of the things that i hope to imitate more and more as I get older. So Jason, how do we, this week, as we work through, as we've been working through this, I'm really trying to, I think this is one of the key areas that I need to really get a handle on and find the things that I haven't been engaging um, with the mindset of understand my priestly duties. Cause I think there's a lot of us have kind of let that go. How do we start, acknowledging and then engaging with the duties that we have as priests. How, how do we do that? Um, That's a big question, I mean, by the way. It is. Uh, it's a big question. And I, mean, I think, I think you start with the things that are in front of you, right? You start by saying, um, have I been treating my children as an accessory to my story or am I taking their priesthood seriously am i raising them up in as priests teaching them well, that first you're only talking to presbyterians <laughs> yeah i otherwise you're just teaching your there. kids to be bad priests <laughs> I, I, I wasn't going to go there but i just thought you know, i'd um, toss that joke a joke out it was there. a joke it was a very funny joke. And I do think that <laughs> baptism is fundamentally connected to the restoration of our priesthood. Uh, um, that the washings of the priests, honestly, the washings of the world to restore the priesthood of Noah in the flood, um, oh. along, along with the, you know, which is directly Peter connects to our baptism. Um, the, and I think that's the connection there is the priestliness and then i um the washings uh of the priests the uh the levitical priests um and then the the uh the creation of a nation of priests that happened Mm -hmm. at the red sea um i think it was a fundamental washing you know the water came down on them sprinkled on them as they walked through under the water that that whole thing is a is a restoration of priesthood um which is one of the, I think, the symbols of the sprinkling um, in certain baptismal traditions. I don't, I mean, I, I'm fine with all the different modes of baptism. I don't think, I think they've all got their different symbols and each of the symbolisms is true in the baptism, no matter how it's done. So, um, you know, but I think the, uh, the beginning is saying, okay, right in front of me, the people right in front of me, am I, oblating them according to who God says they are. Yeah. Am I building up my family with the way that I speak? Is my, is my priestly lingo destructive? Oh, um, or is it, 
uh, uplifting? You know, um, am I kind to my family? Am I, am, do my kids want to confess their sins because they know I'll forgive them or do they hide? Do they run off and hide? And do I have to reteach them, um, what grace is because they're, they've learned to hide their sin. Um, am I confessing my own sins to my family when I sin or am I uh, hiding, pretending it never happened? You know, those sorts of, I think that's the beginning of the restoration of our priesthood is right in front of us. Am I lifting, um, lifting up or tearing down the people in my family? Um, and then you go out to the next ring. Am I, uh, in my workplace, in my, uh, daily life when in school, um, at my kid's school. And, um, and then am I, and then beyond that, am I teaching my kid, am I lifting the eyes of my children up and, and, you know, um, making sure they know how proud I am of them and then helping them see who God made them to be so that they can get out into the wilderness and tame it. Are they, are they ready? Um, are they being trained up in that? And so, and so, so some of this, you know, um, you know, the, the little liturgies of discipline, um, that we have, I think are really important in this sort of thing. Um, when we were, you know, when we'd give our kids, uh, spankings, you know, we'd pull them in, we called it Babylon it was the bathroom, um, you know, where, where there, where the spanking spoon was, pull them in, say, here's, here's what you're getting spanking for. Um, give them the spanking and then, uh, say to them, um, okay, uh, you know, help, help them pray. They repeated after me their prayers for a long time. Father in heaven, Father in heaven, please forgive me. Please forgive me um, uh, for uh, getting angry and hitting my sister, you know, for getting angry and hitting my sister. Uh, thank you for Jesus' death on the cross. Thank you for Jesus' death on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' name, amen. And then, and then they'd open their eyes and say, and Jesus makes us, and they would say, all clean. Right. And then we would hug and help them get it together. And once they were breathing normal and smiling, we'd head back into society and rejoin the place. Right. Those little liturgies of restoration are teaching them the kind of priests that they're intended to be in the world. So what's the um, Baptist version of that? Is I think Baptists can do the exact same thing because the truth of the promises is real, even if they don't acknowledge it, because that's how faith works. They can tell but their number child to pray to Jesus. They absolutely Just, should and could amen. and amen. ought to. Amen. Um, because God has told them that, that their children are his children too. It's a little inconsistent, um, but I'm fine with that. I'm I'm, I'm happy <laughs> with do, it. Yeah, but I, I do think that um, you know, they're they're raised they're they you know, we should be raising our kids up into that priesthood. And it's amen. And you know, um and the uh, and you know those sorts of things. I think over time, those th- when we're in fellowship with one another, those things settle themselves out. And Presbyterians learn the learn the things that Baptists have right, and Baptists learn the things Presbyterians have right, and then we you know we learn the things that Anglicans have right. And, they, and over time, as we move towards Jesus, which gets us closer to one another, um, because that's how geometry works, uh, the uh, if everybody's moving towards the center point, they're also getting closer to one another. The, um, the, uh, we learn the, I think the traditions are re knit together. Um, 
and that they bring their strengths together back into Christendom. But I don't think we get Christendom when the church is fractured the way it is. I mean, I don't, it's Jesus says, Lord, I pray that they would be unified so that they would know that I am the Lord, the son of the father. Right. We, we don't, we don't get the world to acknowledge Christ when we're, uh, when we aren't unified, but that's a whole nother, a whole nother topic. Cause I want the world to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ. I pray for it. I pray that they would acknowledge that the name of the Lord would be lifted above every name, all of those things. But I know that Jesus says that it's directly connected to the unity of his people. And we're a fractured mess right now. So, but it, you got to start with the things in front of you. You got to start by training your children up to <clears throat> love the Lord and to recognize that, um, that, their siblings uh, are the people that trust Jesus, you know, meet somebody that loves Jesus and they're like a sibling. And then they find out what denomination they're in down the road. But it starts with, wait, we have the same father. We have the same older brother and man, we love him. We're unique. We're unified there. So what, where did you learn about Jesus? Oh, you learned about him over the Pentecostal church. I learned about him over at the Presbyterian church. Um, what was that like being raised over there, sibling? <laughs> I think that's how we that, <laughs> that conversation always ends with somebody getting stoned or drowned. I know, which is why we need to remember <laughs> by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption, so that bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking with all malice are not the way our tongue is shaped. Amen. That's good. <laughs>